Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. My name is Pradeep Kamath, and I'm a pediatric critical care physician at Emory University School of Medicine. And my name is Rahul Demania, a current second-year pediatric critical care fellow. Today's episode is dedicated to tumor lysis syndrome. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Himali Subnis. Dr. Subnis is an assistant professor of pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine. She's also a pediatric hematologist oncologist at the Affleck Cancer and Blood Disorder Centers at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. She's also the co-director of the high-risk leukemia team at Affleck Cancer and Blood Disorder Center at the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. I will turn it over to Rahul now to start with our patient case. We have a three-year-old female with pre-BALL presents on day two of chemotherapy to the pediatric intensive care unit. She has admitted as there was a arrhythmia noted on her telemetry. Her initial labs are notable for an elevated WBC count of 150,000. And in the PICU, she is noted to have decreased urine output and an EKG notable for peak T waves. Her labs are notable for hyperkalemia, hyperphosphatemia, and low ionized calcium. Dr. Sabnes, this case highlights some of the key clinical and laboratory features of tumor lysis syndrome. Do you mind describing for our listeners what exactly is tumor lysis syndrome and how you would define it? Sure. So tumor lysis syndrome is actually one of the more common pediatric oncologic emergencies that we commonly encounter for um, a lot of our pediatric cancer patients. And the way we typically explain it to the families is it is resulting from um, patient cells basically opening up or lysing as either the cancer grows out of control or when we initiate chemotherapy or any treatment for the cancer. So the way I typically explain it to families is that anything that's inside the cell is basically now out in your blood. And typically it's not supposed to be that way. So the main things that really are things that can become medical problems is things like potassium, phosphorus, and as a result of the high phosphorus, they can have a low calcium. And all these three metabolic abnormalities basically affect organ function. The other big one, which is something we definitely worry about is uric acid, which technically is not always present inside the cells, but as your cell breaks open, the DNA in the cells breaks down and the end result is uric acid. And that's what comes into the cell, into the blood and causes problems. And so most patients, when they are at risk for this tumor lysis, we typically would like to give our intensivist heads up because this is something that while we are comfortable knowing and understanding, we still require their help for management. You definitely highlighted some key metabolic abnormalities in tumor lysis syndrome. Are there some clinical manifestations that patients present with? They can, and we hope that the cases that they present with these clinical changes when they are in the hospital, because these are definitely life-threatening events. For example, with the electrolyte abnormalities that I just mentioned, you can definitely have these patients develop cardiac arrhythmias, just like the patient you described at the start of this case. And sometimes we've actually, I personally have had patients present with kidney failure and basically have a really elevated creatinine and they almost discover the cancer in retrospect. So those are typically the cases that we would see a patient presenting with heart abnormalities or someone presenting with a high kidney number or decreased urine output as their main complaint. Dr. Subnis, as we are very vigilant of tumor lysis syndrome, 
when new diagnosis new diagnosis oncology patients present to the PQ, are there certain patient populations that have a higher incidence of tumor lysis syndrome? Yes, for sure. And I'm glad you asked me this question because I think this is the one key point that we as oncologists really want intensivists to understand because just because a patient has cancer does not mean that they have tumor lysis. So for example, when we think of cancer in general, pediatric cancer, um, hematological malignancies definitely are at a higher risk, whereas solid tumors or brain tumors are not at the same risk. So within the pediatric cancer realm, there's definitely a hierarchy of tumor lysis. And the ones that we think of are at the highest risk for tumor lysis are malignancies specifically related to high cell turnover. So the idea is, is if the tumor is growing really fast, that means when we start things, they often get killed very fast. And if that's the case, then those patients with these high, fast-growing tumors are at the maximum risk of tumor lysis. So if you ask me in terms of diagnosis, Burkitt's lymphoma or leukemia, diffuse large B-cell leukemia or lymphoma are the ones that are the highest risk for tumor lysis. And those are the ones that we are most worried about. The next one in that category really falls into the acute leukemias. So you have acute lymphoblastic leukemia or acute myeloid leukemia that kind of form the second tier. But not only is the diagnosis important, the lab abnormalities that patients present with are also taken into account while kind of determining their risk. Dr. Sabnes, I think that the malignancies with increased cellular burden are really at the highest risk of developing uh, tumor lysis syndrome. That is correct. As we've discussed about patients at highest risk and with our case, would you mind highlighting the key pathophysiologic principles which drive tumor lysis syndrome? Absolutely. So the way tumor lysis works is with the way any cell dies or undergoes apoptosis in your body. So basically anything that's within the cell, so the electrolytes that typically come out are potassium, which is a big problem for heart function and rhythm abnormalities, followed by ATP, which is in your cells, which is mainly phosphorus. And so as phosphorus comes out, typically it tends to combine with the calcium that's circulating and form calcium phosphate deposits. And this not only can interfere with kidney function, but it can also cause decrease in the circulating ionized calcium. And that in turn will impact your heart function. So electrolyte abnormalities are typically the ones that I listed above. In summary, it's hyperkalemia, hyperphosphatemia, and hypocalcemia. The fourth big component is the uric acid. And the uric acid is an end product of DNA. So whenever DNA or deoxyribonucleic acids break down, they ultimately form xanthine and hypoxanthine, which then ultimately get converted into uric acid. And uric acid is you know, normally excreted by our kidneys. And if your kidneys are able to deal with a certain amount of uric acid, that's fine. But often due to this high turnover, there's, if there's excessive amounts of uric acid, then the kidneys often get overwhelmed. And it's kind of having an instant onset of gout almost, where you have so much uric acid in your system that your body can't deal with it and urate crystals are formed. So basically tumor lysis is resulting in those four key abnormalities, hyperuricemia, hyperkalemia, hyperphosphatemia, and hypocalcemia. 
And lastly, which we don't tend to see a lot, tumor lysis can result in end organ damage that can happen pretty quickly. And that could potentially result in release of inflammatory cytokines and cause an inflammatory syndrome with some multi-organ system failure. Thankfully, we don't see that very often because we've gotten very good at recognizing and preventing it, but it can definitely be an, a possibility. Dr. Subnis, besides the electrolytes uh, that you mentioned, are there any other laboratory markers which you trend in patients with uh, tumor lysis syndrome? So some of the lab, lab markers that we trend tend to be LDH, that is, um, if you look at the algorithms for management of tumor lysis that are published in the literature, they'll often talk about LDH as being used as a marker to know when to actively intervene for tumor lysis. Clinically, we tend to not always use it as much, partly because we look at the malignancy, the type of malignancy, and what the baseline other lab abnormalities are, but it's definitely something we can trend. The things that we will watch for, though not as frequently, is obviously monitoring that once we initiate therapy, is the blood count coming down or is the cancer responding? And last but not the least, following DIC markers or markers for other end organ damage is something we will trend. But the mainstay of tumor lysis still involves following the four abnormalities that I spoke about, but the other ones kind of are followed along the side just to manage the patient in general. Is there a time interval which you typically recommend trending these markers? So that's a great question because we get this often. And the key is to time them based on knowing what the malignancy is, knowing what you're starting with in terms of tumor burden, and then deciding the frequency. Because we have to remember these are critically sick patients typically that present. And so while it is great to check it every few hours, like four to six hours, sometimes it one may not be necessary depending on the malignancy. And two, it also is an additional burden in terms of blood draws and other testing that might be occurring concurrently, which may be more important. So while, yes, in the ideal world, it would be nice to trend it frequently, the frequency can be anywhere between six hours to every 12 hours based on what's going on with the patient and what their underlying malignancy is. Dr. Subnis, we want to move to the management of tumor lysis syndrome. What is your management framework and how would, should we approach patients with tumor lysis syndrome? Great. So the key to management of tumor lysis, in my opinion, is first understanding the risk and second, knowing your resources. So when I, let's talk about what understanding the risk means a little bit. So understanding the risk is like I spoke about knowing which malignancy you're dealing with and knowing what you're starting with. Once we have a sense of what the underlying malignancy is, we typically decide whether this patient is someone who can be actively managed on a regular inpatient floor versus requiring more intensive management in the ICU. Our bias typically is also to have intensivists involved sooner than later so that if we know a patient is going to require intensive monitoring, we've kind of made those decisions before the patient actively decompensates with hyperkalemia or um, hyperuricemia. So typically, what we, there are certain things that we can do to prevent things from getting worse. So first of all, if we are concerned about tumor lysis, we definitely would place the patient on continuous cardiac monitoring. The second thing that we can do very easily is actually get 
a step ahead of uric acid control by starting patients on allopurinol. Allopurinol is basically a drug that's a xanthine oxidase inhibitor. And the way it works is it actually prevents the production of uric acid. So if your uric acid is already high, allopurinol is not going to do anything for it. It's really going to only work on the production of more uric acid further down the line. But starting a patient on allopurinol is never a bad thing because it's a very well-tolerated drug and it will definitely decrease further production. What it will not do, however, is get rid of the existing uric acid that's there. And that's where we are thankful that we actually have urate oxidase inhibitor, which is basically rasburicase. And you, I apologize, it's not a urate oxidase inhibitor. It's actually a urate oxidase. And it's basically an enzyme that will break down the uric acid that's in the system already. And by doing that, it's really going to bring down your uric acid very quickly and prevent any deposition in the kidney or any other organs. So actively, those are the things that we use for uric acid control. And the remaining electrolyte disturbances, such as hyperkalemia, hyperphosphatemia, and um, hypocalcemia are managed individually. That's something that we typically manage with in conjunction with an intensivist because they are also as just as well trained to manage these, to be honest. So I will you know, leave that to you guys to discuss further if y'all would need to. Dr. Subnis, are there some patients where you may actually delay starting chemotherapy or even steroids, especially if they're at high risk for tumor lysis? In my opinion, we typically never delay starting therapy because we have active interventions that can be used to manage the side effects. We definitely have had patients who are at high risk of tumor lysis that have even gone to the extent of requiring renal support in the form of CVVH or dialysis for management of some of the issues. The reason why we don't want to delay initiation of treatment is Though the tumor lysis is a concern, the overall clinical condition of the patient is not going to improve until you start treatment of the cancer. So since we have the ability for supportive care measures in place, it's almost never in the modern age that we actually delay the initiation of therapy, knowing that that's really what the patient ultimately needs. I kind of equate it to management of DIC. Like unless you fix the primary problem, you're never going to fix the DIC. Thank you so much for highlighting it. And I really think that it's such a case-by-case basis as well as balancing the risks and the benefits. Let's go ahead and take these electrolyte abnormalities by its own category. Starting with hyperkalemia, the central tenants we typically think of are going to be stabilizing the cardiac membrane with calcium gluconate, insulin, and glucose. And that serves to be a topic on its own. Do you mind just commenting a little bit about hyperphosphatemia and hypocalcemia? Sure. So typically we tend to manage hyperphosphatemia by use of oral phosphate binders. And that's typically an easy way to manage it, especially if the patient is able to tolerate um, oral intake. We don't worry so much about hypocalcemia unless there is a risk for actual cardiac dysfunction. And so we will, at that point, require a key role for intensivists to play to help us kind of find that fine balance. There is always the theoretical risk of ectopic calcification from hypocalcemia and hyperphosphatemia. Clinically, it's not something we worry about as much because really the metabolic 
abnormalities affecting the cardiac function are more a, a cause for worry at that point rather than the theoretical risk of calcification. Dr. Kamat, we see these patients very frequently in the pediatric intensive care unit, and at times they are unable to be medically managed. How do you approach CRRT in patients with tumor lysis syndrome? Rahul, that's a good question. I think I want to say that uh, indication for renal replacement uh, in these patients uh, is actually uh, similar to other forms of acute kidney injury, such as intractable hyperkalemia, fluid overload. But uh, a lower threshold for initiating CVVH should be used in patients expected to manifest tumor lysis syndrome due to their tumor burden. Excellent. Finally, Dr. Sabnes, I wanted to highlight any opportunities for the prevention of tumor lysis syndrome? It's, there's really real, no specific way you can prevent it, to be honest. What we can do, as some of the measures I mentioned, like initiation of allopurinol, pretty much we do that as a routine for all patients, even before initiation of therapy. That's really the only one thing that you can use to prevent hyperuricemia that can follow initiation of chemotherapy. And the others are just things that you know it can happen, you look for it, and you manage it as soon as you start seeing things turn ugly. Dr. Sabnis, thank you so much for providing your insights today. In summary for our listeners, what would be your take-home clinical pulse uh, in the management of tumor lysis syndrome? I'm glad you asked that because uh, we often have this kind of decision-making that's uh, really uh, time-sensitive and that needs to be made between oncologists and intensivists. So first of all, I say, make sure you know what you're dealing with. So with what that means is knowing, understanding your diagnosis and figuring out what the risk is. Because as I mentioned earlier, and I could not stress anymore, but every cancer is different and every cancer does not have the same risk of tumor lysis. The second thing I would state is that fluid management, which we didn't talk about a whole lot in this section, but I think is really important for intensivists to understand is that while we understand that hyperhydration is required and it's a part of management of tumor lysis, not every patient needs the same degree of hydration. And some patients actually can be at risk for pulmonary edema if you hydrate too much and if their risk of tumor lysis is low. So there is a balance to be achieved in management of that. And then lastly is be proactive in monitoring. And if you see signs, intervene quick and intervene early because I have actually seen a patient die of tumor lysis in the last 10 years of me doing this. And so it is a real threat. We've gotten really good at getting on top of it in time, but we have also had, um, you know, errors and issues happen if timely intervention was not done. I think in summary for our, our listeners, I'm glad we were able to highlight today the balance between the risk as well as your resources, which you have at hand. The key is early recognition as well as being aggressive with correcting various electrolyte abnormalities in tumor lysis syndrome. Dr. Sabnes, we appreciate your insights on today's uh, podcast. And to our listeners, we hope you find value in the short podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast. And as always, Pick You Doc on Call is hosted by Dr. Pradeep Kamat and myself, Dr. Rahul Jamania. Stay tuned for our next episode. And thank you again, Dr. Sabnes. Thank you, Dr. Sabnes. Thank you.